Last week, I thought we would just carefully walk through chapter 4 of Matthew and talk about the non-controversial thing of Jesus being tempted by Satan. And we had probably one of the most interactive nights we've had. And I was thrilled. Uh, it's great. You guys know that the idea behind Exodus is that we're all participants. And so you can get ready, get your hand ready. Jeremy, keep your hand down for just a little while. To give, me, give me just a little bit of room. I know. So I want to just kind of touch on a couple points from last week, but I, I want to welcome you to always be able to like jump in. And we even had disagreement, which is great. We were covering the temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. There were three points that I felt like we kind of left hanging that I'd just like to come back to because we talked about them afterwards and they were good enough that I at least wanted to mention them again to kind of deepen our understanding. When we got to temptation number two, we were talking about the fact that the devil actually cites Psalm 91 to Jesus. And he says to him, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up into their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And I made the comment that what the devil was doing was taking Scripture out of context. The reason I want to come back to this point is because when we began, when we began this series, one of the things I said that studying Scripture will help us do is not take Scripture out of context. One of the reasons that rather than just doing one of our normal topical type subjects, we're actually reading line by line through Scripture is so that we can follow this notion that if we understand the wholeness of Scripture, we'll stop taking things out of context. So, here's the devil taking something out of context, and I think there was some confusion when I said he was doing that. What do I mean by taking something out of context? I just want to throw this in there. Here's the definition I'm kind of using. Taking something out of context is what, this is my consideration, it's like a verse that's accurately stated, which on its own appears to support the proposition for which it's offered. But when you examine the context, you find out that it means something different. And what I was trying to indicate here was the devil is accurately quoting Psalm 91. And he's accurately quoting the words themselves. So what is, why, why is that taken out of context then? Because if you read Psalm 91 in its entirety, it's about the Lord protecting the ones that he loves. Not about throwing yourself off from some high pinnacle and saying, Ah, but it says somewhere that you will not strike your foot against a stone, that the angels will lift you up. But that's not what Psalm 91 is about. There's nowhere in Psalm 91 that says, if you go to a high place and throw yourself off, angels will lift you up. That's not what it means. But that's what the devil was trying to make it mean. He was trying to twist it. He was saying, go ahead, throw yourself off. I can cite you scripture that will show that you won't get hurt. And that's why Jesus responds, you should not test the Lord your God. Because what you're doing is you're first citing it out of context, and you're setting up a test. Psalm 91 is about the Lord protecting those he loves, not about you just deciding, hey, I'm going to jump off a cliff and see if God loves me, all right? So just to be clear, nobody do that, okay? All right. That's point one. Point two, some of you asked about this. Did Jesus really fast for 40 days and 40 nights? 40, no? Are you contradicting scripture? It says 40 days and 40 nights. That's what my Bible says. How many people think that it's 40 days and 40 nights? Anyone? Literal? Okay, we got one literal. Two? I always wondered how it could be because I, I didn't think anybody could go that long without eating chicken. Okay. Anyone think it means something else? Any ideas? Angela? It's probably a symptom. 
frolic member. It's like a trial member. It's like a, the, the, didn't the ark uh, storm? The flood. Yeah. 40 days, 40 nights. Yeah. Here's the comment I want to make because a number of you asked about this, and I thought it was fair enough that we at least do this. You've seen 40 days and 40 nights if you've read through the scriptures in a number of places. I mean, you're right. The ark, I mean, it rained 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Elijah traveled on one meal up into the wilderness to meet the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. Like, after a while, you think, we have a very precise God. Okay? We have a precise God who likes the number 40. Saul reigned for 40 years. David, his 40 years. Solomon, 40 years. Now, I'm not going to give you an answer on this. Sorry, Ryan. Where's Ryan? He hates it when I do that. But I'm not going to give you a straight answer. I will tell you that here's the issue that people look at so that you know. And this, the answer to the question that was asked is, is it really 40 days and 40 nights? Of course, like everything in Christianity, people immediately break into two camps, right? There's the people who believe, yes, it means literally 40 days and 40 nights. And the instance of 40 that keeps repeated through the Bible is there to show that God is behind the scenes constantly reminding us because these things wouldn't come out to 40 every single time otherwise. The second camp says, if you look at the language, 40 days and 40 nights seems to be a almost like an idiomatic expression of a period of time. This is not the direct analogy. Some people have said, like, that's like when we say, well, I stood in line for a million years. Nobody really believes that we stood in line for a million years. And if somebody recorded a gospel, okay, it's not exactly the same thing. Because in English, that isn't an idiomatic expression as much as it's an exaggeration. We, have, we use exaggeration in English too much. But it seems, at least in Hebrew, that there's more of these instances, and in Aramaic, there's this instance of repeating it kind of in this period of time. That a substantial period of time could have been denoted by 40 days and 40 nights. Okay? So two camps, I'll leave it up to you. But going back to what Angela said, she said something that's really dead on. It is also symbolic, whether it's a literal period of time or whether it's kind of an expression that 40 days and 40 nights seems to always imply, that number 40 seems to imply a period of testing, a period of trial. Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years. Okay? Jesus is in his wilderness experience repeating what happened to Israel, but doing it in a different way where he succeeds, where they fail. It's a parallel. Again, the number 40 is there. So constantly when we see that number, it kind of indicates that period of trial. If this was the only time it appeared in the Bible, it would be a little curious. But the fact that this phrase is repeated over and over causes me at least some comfort to go, well, it's probably just the way they described it. I just want to know, when it means fasting, does it mean from food or could it mean something else? Because I know today we would fast from something. He was fasting from TV in the wilderness, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I've always assumed it's, it's for food, but I don't have any... You know, because the temptation comes with turn the stone to bread. So, I mean, that seems to be what it has to relate to in context, but I can't give you a citation. That's the point. You guys asked about it. So it depends on how you view 40 days and 40 nights, and scholars are kind of divided over it. But whatever you understand about it, it certainly seems to be a period of testing. Okay, the last thing I'm just going to talk about for like 20 seconds, because I know we got into this last week, was... What does it matter if Jesus was tempted? Could he sin? Or is it just that he didn't want to sin? You know, like he just, he could, but he didn't want to. Or he just couldn't, 
and we talked about this. I just want to be clear that maybe what you need to do on this point is look further into the doctrine of the incarnation. I'm not saying it's going to answer that question, but I want to be clear that Jesus was fully God and fully man. Here's a succinct definition of this very complicated issue, which you can come up afterwards. I'll put it up on the screen and you can try to read it and understand it. But the two natures are united without loss of any essential attributes and the two natures maintain their separate identity, etc., etc. In other words, it's not as simple as we were making it out last week. And this is an area that we will someday maybe spend some time studying because a number of you had questions about it. But I just encourage you to look into it a little bit deeper if you want to. All right. And I did look much deeper into the question of can Jesus, could Jesus have sinned versus just, you know, he could have, but he didn't want to. And again, scholars on all sides, I have a couple articles. If you're really still interested in debating that as much as we did last week, I can give you the articles. I picked two good ones that are on either side. You can read why people believe he could or he couldn't. Okay? All right, let's go back to Scripture and start in chapter 4 where we left off. Jesus, after being tempted and going into the desert, now is ready to begin his public ministry. I'm starting in verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, Nazareth he went and lived in Capernaum, which is by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He's gone through the phase of being baptized, he's been tested, and now he begins his public ministry by proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Who preached that same kind of message earlier? John. He's almost showing that he's picking up. John came as the precursor, John came as the person to announce that he was setting up what was about to happen, Jesus is now showing He's taking the baton almost. Yeah. What do you think it means the kingdom of heaven is near? You want to throw it out? It could be near for us in years because even if it was a couple thousand, it's nothing compared to eternity. Okay. So you're talking about a nearness in terms of time, right? Philip. And then I'm thinking potentially the kingdom of heaven, if it means the same thing as the kingdom of God, could have the meaning of basically the church. In the sense, like the followers... The kingdom of heaven is made up of Christians, people who are following Christ. And since Christ sort of just arrived and started his ministry, like the kingdom of heaven, in a sense, is sort of being started. Do you want to weigh in? Sure. The first disciples thought Jesus was, you know, after his resurrection, like they preached a very uh, immediacy and thought, you know, we're not going to make it. Like, like he's coming again, you know, within a year or two. Now, obviously, we've seen 2,000 years later that it hasn't happened, but... So, I mean, the gist of most scholarship says there's this idea that Jesus instituted the kingdom of God, that he brought it, that he began it, and yet it's not fully consummated. So there's this here and now idea of the kingdom of God, and there's a, well, it's still coming also, kingdom of God. So it's kind of like this, <laughs> it's a very malleable term, but it's, it's 
a combination of the teachings of the lifestyle of, of God and heaven coming to earth in some way, but it's not fully here yet. So there's a now and not yet. There's like a tension in there. Okay. Anyone want to add to it? Um, just like I said last week, the political aspect of that, the people are waiting. They're waiting for a political leader to come and to deliver them from Rome and their oppressed and such. So Jesus is saying the promise that the prophet said is finally here, and which was huge. Uh, I would say that he's trying to uh, ignite the people's interest. Okay, but look at the words though. The first word he begins with is repent, right? He doesn't say like, you know, get ready to vote, you know, the, the, the earthly political kingdom is on its way, or pick up your plowsh, you know, like we're going for it. The first word is repent. The tension, I think, and this is my view on what it means, the tension is there is a kingdom, there's a part of the kingdom now, and there's a part not yet, and I'll define them in this way. The part of the kingdom that's now, some people refer to as the kingdom of grace. The, what ushers in the good news. We looked at what the good news was to some people, like we, as he was preaching. Like, go and tell John, remember? Like, what you see. The dead are raised, people are healed, blind see, you set the captives free. There's that part of the kingdom. There's the part of the kingdom that really directly relates to repent, meaning... The kingdom is at hand. Your ability to join in the kingdom of grace, or you can call it the kingdom of salvation, is at hand. It's time. You can now be part of what's been promised all the way through the Old Testament. You can finally get ready to be part of it. The part that's yet to come is what people call the kingdom of glory, when we're finally reach the full fulfillment of what God's plan is. All right? Kingdom is open for business is the, the maybe a base way of saying it. It's open for business. The part of the kingdom where the good news is being preached, people are taken care of, that part is open. The part of the kingdom that's like bringing people in, repent, come into the kingdom, join and be forgiven, get ready for the journey. Like That part is open, but the part that isn't here yet is when it's all closed up and the judgment takes place and we find out who's in the kingdom of glory and who isn't. We talked about this when we talked about praying the Lord's Prayer. When we pray, thy kingdom come, there's a tension even in the words that Jesus told us to pray. Like, thy kingdom come meaning spread your kingdom across the world. Keep your kingdom open a while longer. Let everyone get in. But at the same time, we're praying, thy kingdom come, meaning the future part, come now. Seal the thing up. Let's have the judgment. Let's move on to the next life. Let's get going. There's that tension that Christians have to live in, and Jesus is announcing the tension here although it's hard to see in just that one word. But we know the reason that tension's there, because when he says it's near, some of us are saying, well, yeah, in a few thousand years, maybe that's close compared to eternity. But it's also near in immediacy because he's now announcing that it's open for business. All right, verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And they were in a boat, and their father Zebedee, I'm sorry, they were in a boat with their father Zebedee. 
preparing their nets. Jesus called them and immediately left the boat and their father and followed him. It's a nice story, right? Anything jump out at you in that? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I mean, we have no indication of how wide yet. We're going to get to it, but we don't have any indication yet. So I'm not going to say that this is written chronologically. The information we're about to get might answer your question, so I'll hold it for just a second. Once, I don't know, somebody knows more might correct me, but I mean, Jesus was a rabbi, right? He was called rabbi by people, but I don't know that Jesus would have fit the true definition of rabbi. Yeah, I've heard that it would be, I mean, it's normal for a rabbi to call followers, and it would be kind of a high to be called by a rabbi, so they would be excited to just get up and leave. Yeah. Let me, let me comment on that. If these disciples viewed Jesus as a rabbi, then not only would it be a big deal to be called by him, it would be highly unusual. Because the normal way in which you approached a rabbi if you wanted to study under them was you you approach them and you ask them if you could study under them. I mean, it was your job to seek them out, almost like a job seeker takes a resume and goes to them and says, I would like to be your disciple. So here, this is highly unusual, whether they saw Jesus as a rabbi or not, for Jesus to be going out to people and saying, you, come follow me, is a strange move for Jesus. So let's put that somewhere and deal with it. And on top of it, if... Like, because at least from my understanding, some of the Jewish educational system was that they they were trying to move in that direction. You know, as a young student, they would you know be studying the scriptures as the basis of their education. So by them being fishermen means they weren't smart enough to continue on that process. At some point, they dropped off and well, I'm going to join Dad. Right. Business. Somebody's been studying Rob Bell, I yeah, think. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yes. I I don't want to con- contradict the new Pope of the Emergent <laughs> Church in any way, but. But one additional thing that I think Rob misses on that a little bit is that it's not only that they might not have been smart enough, but here's something we often overlook because we think of fishermen like, oh, dumb fishermen. Uh, Actually, these guys had a family business in fishing, which means that they were probably pretty well off, all right? Because the fishermen, I mean, it's, it's important to note that they were mentioned like with their father who was fishing, which means that they have a family business of fishing. They have probably workers and other people who are working for this large family business. We don't know what they were doing. They could have been mending nets, literally like it says, but they probably were involved in all sorts of other aspects of the business. So probable that they weren't going to be disciples of another rabbi, one, because they had been overlooked or rejected, or just because they're already in a profession that's pretty good that most people would want to be in. Capernaum is a fishing town. So if you own a fishing business in a fishing town, you're probably right where you want to be. All right? And then here comes Jesus and says, follow me. So it's a little unusual that he's done that. Now let's go back to kind of the tenor where Monique was coming from. Like, so what do you do? You're part of a family business. Maybe dad's doing okay. This guy shows up at the side of the lake or wherever he is, or you're mending nets, and he goes, come on, follow me. And you just immediately go. Right? That's how we would do it. Right? I mean, the language, Matthew makes it pretty clear. I don't know if they jumped out of the boat and swam. 
I don't know if they were already there and they just dropped everything and left, but he makes it pretty clear with the language. He's trying to emphasize the immediacy. Joe. Sure. Is that strange or is that? Seems kind of weird. I would ask <laughs> You gotta think at least there's some argument for the fact that Jesus' words have authority. Like something's ringing. You know, some guy comes up, whether whether it's a big deal for them or not. Okay, who cares? The guy asks them to follow him, and they do it immediately. There's some reason that they decide to trust him. There's some authority there. I think I think that the reason is because in every movie I've seen about Jesus. He has a British accent, so <laughs> if all you speak is Aramaic and you're around fish all day, and then somebody comes up in a British accent and says something like, come follow me, I mean, it just sounds so cool. I mean, they could have said anything. Like, even the fishers of men thing, they're like, do you know what he meant? Like, no, but it sounded cool, though. You know? So they just left their nets and followed him, right? Randy. Isn't it kind of like when uh, they got the donkey for him, though? Like, they just said the master as needed, but there was no second questions. They just let there are instances like that in the Gospels. That's actually true, that there, there's no explanation. Okay, let me give you one clue real fast. I'm just going to read you this. If you look, and you don't have to flip over, but in the book of John, it talks about the fact that Andrew, at least, who's the brother of Simon Peter, was a disciple of John the Baptist. Okay, So there's some connection already. And there's actually a story of how John introduces Jesus. Andrew gets interested, then goes and brings his brother Peter to meet Jesus. That may not be this exact account, but it sounds like there may have been some, some interaction between them already. But that doesn't take away the fact that two other explanations are likely. One is his fame is spreading, because we're about to talk about that. The other one is the one that Randy mentioned, which is that there's times when Jesus just said certain things and they were just taken as true and that may be just because he was Jesus. Okay? Morgan hinted on that as well. So those are kind of things to keep in mind. The application for us, by the way, because I said we're not just doing this just to learn what we didn't know about the book of Matthew, which is our primary goal, by the way. There's so much that we don't know about the story that we think we know. But the application for us today is we've all met Jesus. So it isn't an issue for us. If he said, come follow me now, how many of us would ditch immediately what we were doing and follow him instead of trying to wrap things up? How many of us right now have heard that call in our life? It should be everybody, by the way. Come follow me. To leave everything behind for whatever it is that he's asking us to do. Don't know what that is? Well, we've already covered that whole thing and how to figure out God's will, but just open up the Bible, start reading. There's so many things in this book that he wants us to do. It's direct commandments of what we're supposed to be doing in the world. We're not even touching most of them. So while he's speaking to these disciples orally, come follow me, he's speaking to us primarily through his word. Remember, that was one of the principles we said we're adopting, that God speaks primarily through his word, and he's speaking to us. Do these things. And most of us are busy with other things in life and not doing the things that he wants us to do. The literal words, by the way, are not come follow me. If you read them just literally, they're come after me. And they imply the same after me that John used when he said, there is one coming after me, pointing at Jesus, next in line in the succession of what's coming. Jesus is doing the same thing to his disciples. Come after me. Yes, follow me, but literally come after me. 
Like, be my successor. And I think he's saying it to us. Come after me. Let's not take that too far. I mean, we're not going to be the successors of Christ in terms of his Christhood. But in terms of his disciples, in terms of people who followed him, that's what exactly what happened to the disciples. They carried on the message. They followed him to their own deaths eventually. And I think that's kind of very true for us, that we need to go after the one in the same way. Now let's hit the point about his fame spreading so we can answer that as well. Verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria. And the people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed. And he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the regions across the Jordan followed him. So it's clear that his fame is starting to spread. All of these places, by the way, for the most part, are in the north, but they start to spread around the Jordan. And they start to spread into Judea, which means they're reaching all the way down to Jerusalem. Monique. What kind of synagogues? Like um, Jewish synagogues? Yeah. So at what point does Jesus' fame and his claims become problematic? Because if he's stepping into Jewish synagogues and preaching where there are traditional um, rabbis... Jesus has not yet announced his identity as the Messiah. And he's actually going to keep it secret for a while, as you see. One of the curious texts we're going to wrestle with is how he keeps it secret, which should bother some of us, but that's for later, okay? But he's not letting that out right away, okay? That's number one. And by all measure, if he's doing anything, he's teaching as a Jewish teacher, okay, or rabbi. Could they teach in the synagogue as just a teacher and not being an official rabbi? Yeah, here's the thing that you're struggling with, it sounds like. The synagogue was not the way we think of, like, uh, a church today where you go to the pastor and go, hey, can I preach? Like, that's, that's not the way it was. Like, the synagogue was really the center of life. Okay, so I don't want to call it a community center, but that's the closest thing we have. Because in our way of thinking the church, while we might think it's the center of a Christian life, it's locked. <laughs> you can't go there, right? Or, or you can't speak there. You can't hold meetings there on your own. The synagogue belonged to the community. So you could go there for almost any reason. I mean, you didn't have to be the rabbi speaking. You could just have a group of people meeting, or you could even have sometimes a celebration in the outer courtyard, or you could go inside and just teach. And if people are milling around, they would come over and interact with you and do that. That's what was going on. All right? It's not like he was showing up on like a, like a Saturday service or something and saying, hey, do you mind if I take over? And then starting to speak something different. They're like, who is this guy? You know, like that. That's not what's happening when he's traveling through the synagogues and speaking. He's, usual, he's using the center of their life to meet people where they are and to begin to teach and preach. So fame about him begins to spread, and that's why some people think that maybe by the time he's met some of those other disciples, that this is already happening. That these verses that we just read, that's the way the gospel writer is recording them but it doesn't mean that only during those verses, which we often tend to do when we read the Gospels, we think, okay, starting in this verse, that's when. That's not, maybe that's, time is not the way to read some of those verses. The writer is describing what's happening, but it could have been going on already. One other little thing that we often miss, by the way, since we're looking for things that we don't often think of, you might have heard this said numerous times in the church, 
demon possession. That was just the way that they used to understand epilepsy. Notice that in this gospel, it's very clear and they're separated. When it's talking about his mighty works, that he was curing various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures, they're listed separately. And just because I know a lot of people have heard that, and I've heard that, so they go, well, there probably weren't really demon possessions. That was just probably their way of dealing with things like epilepsy and things they didn't understand. Apparently understood them here. And it's common in the, in the first century that people believe that demons physically possessed people. That was just a common belief, whether you believe whether they were Jewish or not. People just had that belief. All right, what do we get out of it? Let me tell you where we're going real fast, and then I'll close off. Jesus remains in Galilee, and he goes to the top of a mountain, and he begins to preach probably the most famous sermon that Jesus preaches. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And it goes through several chapters in Matthew. Next week, Morgan's going to take over and do the Beatitudes. Here's my challenge to you on the Beatitudes. Look at these things carefully, and don't take them at face value. Some of these things, if you look at them, just read them, you go, this doesn't make sense. And we need to be asking those questions next week and kind of shake it up a little bit. And then we go forward into some of the toughest sayings that Jesus has as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. And I think that's going to be a really rich time for us to go through because there's some things he says that you just think, who could live like that? And that's what I want us to wrestle with. Tonight, though, I want us to remember this one point, the way that those disciples immediately followed. Because I think a lot of us, we hear God's voice. We hear what he's doing. We know what he wants. And if you don't know, I can just point you to a bunch of verses. I'll just give you some. So just start reading some verses. But we're kind of slow on the uptake of actually dropping what's going on in our life to do them. And I just want you to evaluate that. Like, what is so important in our lives that's more important than this kingdom that's at hand right now? That's more important than the things that he has for us to do. Remember, we're the purchased of God. We belong to him, and we're on our way to eternity with him. The remnants of this life are not that important, except for the work that he has laid out for us in his word. The rest of this life is about trying to bring other people into it and doing what he wants us to do, but it's a small thing, you know, compared to the eternity that awaits us, right? Let's pray. Lord, I'm grateful that we've taken the challenge to actually interact with your word, not just skim through it, not just parse it apart with little verses here and there, but to actually read your scriptures, uh, to actually read the gospel itself. And our central focus, Lord, was to be surprised again, to rediscover things we didn't see the first few times, to see the places where we went off the path and started to believe in a gospel that wasn't the one that was actually in the text. Thank you for continuing to open our eyes. Thank you for the discussion, Lord. Uh, Cement this in our heart this week. Right now, Lord, just cement a word picture of a person just leaping out of a boat and just swimming to the shore to follow Christ. What's keeping us in the boat? What's keeping us from just diving in and following you, Lord? Pray this in your name. Amen.